be taking the summer off. Safe Space Radio will be returning to WMPG in September. So for the last in our series, my guest is going to be Ellen Sachs, talking about living with schizophrenia. Ellen R. Sachs is Oren B. Evans Professor of Law, Psychology, and Psychiatry in the Behavioral Sciences at the University of Southern California Gould School of Law. She's also an adjunct professor of psychiatry at the University of California San Diego School of Medicine, and she's on the faculty of the New Center for Psychoanalysis. Ellen is the director of the Sachs Institute for Mental Health Law, Policy, and Ethics, an institute that she founded herself, and she's the author of four books, most recently the book The Center Cannot Hold, My Journey Through Madness. In 2009, Ellen Sachs was awarded a MacArthur Fellowship, otherwise known as the Genius Grant. Welcome to Safe Space, Ellen. Great to be here, Anne. Thanks. Let's start with a little bit of your story about how schizophrenia began showing up in your life as a teenager and as a student during your days at Oxford. Um, Yeah, what I'd like to do is take a minute to kind of talk about what it looks like in general and then do the kind of historical sketch. Sounds good. Just to sort of get the view, the the listener kind of in the mindset of someone who's suffering from psychosis. And for me, a psychosis is like a waking nightmare where you have all the weird, bizarre things happening uh, and impossible things happening and the utter, utter terror. But with a nightmare, you sit bolt upright in bed, open your eyes, and it goes away. And you can't make a psychotic episode go away just by opening your eyes. Um, Schizophrenia is a psychotic disorder. A lot of people think it's multiple personalities, but it's not. Um, And it involves things like delusions, hallucinations, and disorganization. So I've had delusions like thinking that 100,000 people have been killed by my thoughts. I've had hallucinations seeing, you know, a foot-long diameter spider crawling up my wall and disorganized thinking. So I was having a breakdown on the roof of the Yale Law School, and I talked about how uh, I felt that someone had infiltrated the copies of my cases, and then I said, should we case the joint? I don't believe in joints, but they do hold your body together. So it's that kind of disorganized thinking where words kind of are loosely associated but put together don't make sense. A lot of people with schizophrenia have what are called negative symptoms like apathy and withdrawal and inability to work and inability to make friends. And except for the first two years of my illness in England, I've been fortunately spared those. But sort of what was the course of my history? Well, I would, you know, I would break it up into a couple of different, a few different categories. So the first is sort of before I became ill, then it's becoming ill uh, and being in analysis, and then the next phase is being in analysis and being on and off medication, and the final phase is being on steady medication. When I was a kid, I don't think I would have been diagnosed as a childhood schizophrenic, but um, I had some symptoms. I had phobias and obsessions, and I thought a man was standing outside my window every night waiting to pounce on us all and kill us, and nothing would persuade me differently. And as a teenager, I had a kind of mild um, episode when I was about 16. I, In the middle of the school day, I suddenly got up and started walking home about five miles away, and I felt like the houses got really bizarre and weird and spooky and started communicating to me. They were putting thoughts in my head as I walked along. You are special. You are especially bad. You must see, see, see. It scared me to death. College uh, had some out-of-control episodes and some really bad hygiene my first year, but did pretty well. I mean, I was I was first in my class at college, so even in, in the face of some mild symptoms, I did well. But it was when I went to Oxford that I really kind of officially broke down. 
And it started out looking like depression, but over time turned into more of a psychotic disorder. Um, I was hospitalized uh, for the first year a month and the second year for four months, and I eventually got into psychoanalysis with someone I call Mrs. Jones, who was a Kleinian analyst. I was treated with her without medication. I improved enormously in some ways. I started being able to work again and make friends again and really have a life. But I went downhill in other ways. I got much, much more psychotic. I had a lot of delusions. I had a lot of hallucinations. I uh, had very violent fantasies. Uh, For a while, I carried a box cutter and and a serrated knife in my bag just in case. I mean, I was really, really in bad bad way. And mm-hmm. Anyway, I went to Yale Law School and had a major public breakdown on the roof of the law school um, and uh, was hospitalized for five months. Uh, very traumatic experience. I was restrained mechanically for long periods of time, forcibly medicated, given little privacy, watched while I went to the bathroom and took showers. I was very, very, very psychotic, put on medication, eventually got better. Uh, went back to law school. It was predicted that I would never uh, be able to finish my degree, but I disagreed, and I did. Mm. And then uh, went on the teaching market and uh, took a job at uh, USC here in Los Angeles. It's a great place. Um, continued to have symptoms. Uh, of, you know, Kept trying to get on and off medication because I couldn't accept the fact that I had an illness. I wanted to prove that I didn't have it. But eventually my analyst persuaded me just to stay on a steady dose and especially now that I'm on the medication that I'm on, which is really the Cadillac in terms of efficacy, clozapine, I still have symptoms, um, but they're fewer, they're farther apart, they're less intense, they're less long-lasting. Um, so I'm, you know, have a very, very good life now. I, when I was ill and, uh, you know, when I first broke down in America, I was given a grave prognosis, which means I was expected to be unable to live independently, let alone to work, and that that hasn't turned out to my life to be my life, and I'm very fortunate about that um, and have a really, really good life in the face of some symptoms still. So you've said so much and it feels... I know, I kind of... It's so powerful. It's almost, you know, how to know where to begin to respond. (laughs) But I want to come back in some ways to where you started about psychosis as a waking nightmare. Right. And um, in your experience... You know, that's such a powerful example because I think, oh, my gosh, when I wake from a nightmare, I mean, I'm terrified. Terrified, It's yeah. And I think, what would it be like to live like that yeah. for a yeah. long period? I mean, it just right. must be exhausting. So much effort Well, it's required. exhausting, and it's, it's very scary. I mean, as yes. you say, you know, with a nightmare, it's really scary. And for, for it to go on and on and on, it's, it's devastating. Yeah. When that happens... Are there? Do you sort of go in and out of being aware? Okay, this isn't real. I'm, but I, but I believe it anyway. Or do you? Are there times when you, know, you can't even know that, where you're just in it? You know, it's actually. My husband says that um, psychosis is not like an on-off switch, but like a dimmer. So yeah. that there are degrees of it. And at the very far end, I'll have a transient psychotic thought, like I've killed hundreds of people with thousands of people with my thoughts, and I'll say, "Oh, Ellen, that's just your illness acting. I pay it no mind." A little bit further along in the spectrum, if I've had some stress, you know, and it could even be good for stress, like friends coming to stay with us for a few days I find difficult, even though I love my friends. I might go two or three days where I'm going in and out of psychotic thoughts. And at the very far end, I'm, you know, crouching in a corner and shaking, which hasn't happened in quite some time. But along with the different degrees of psychosis are different degrees of awareness. So again, at the far end, I'll be aware it's illness. 
you know, if I'm more disturbed, what I, I always know, I always have social judgment, so I always know what other people will think is crazy, but I think I have a special premium on the truth and that I know things that other people don't know, and even though they think I'm crazy, they're wrong. Mm-hmm. So I don't have really good insight into the reality of my beliefs, but I do have good insight into what people are, how people are going to respond to me, which has stood me in good stead because it means that I can, you know, kind of negotiate living in the world without being too disruptive or upsetting to people or, or damaging to myself. But there are times certainly where I really sincerely believe what I'm thinking. Yes. So I know that one of the things that was so compelling in your story is how long you held out refusing yeah. to believe that you really had this illness and that you needed medication despite right. four and five months long medica- hospitalizations and right. and this belief that sort of through sheer force of will right. you could keep it from happening again and um, I was very moved by the story of how you finally made peace with it and I wondered if you could tell a little bit about how you finally decided that in fact this was true about you. Well, I mean, as you say, I I spent years trying to get off medication because for me, the motto, the less medicine, the less defective. And it was extremely difficult to accept that I had a mental illness. Um, It's very stigmatized. It's very painful. You don't want to feel like you're damaged in that way. All illnesses are kind of an injury, but mental illnesses are the worst because it goes to the core of who you are as a person. So I struggled for a long time to get off medication. And then, you know, my analyst really, one of my analysts put his foot down and said, you know, you really got to just stop trying and try staying on the medication. And I said, you know, I want to give it one last try. And I did the very, very best I could. I put lots of protections in place and I failed miserably again. And I decided I would just try the medication. And, you know, lo and behold, four or five months on the medication, especially the newer medications, which have fewer side effects and work so much better, my life was just so much better. I felt so much better. I thought more clearly. Um, I had always had a fantasy that uh, everybody else had the same crazy, scary, violent thoughts I did. They were just better at managing them and not showing them to the world. So my problem was not mental illness, but that I was socially maladroit. And when I got on the medication and my mind cleared, I thought, huh, you know, maybe other people don't think the way I used to think. And the funny thing is, the more that I accepted that I had a mental illness, the less it kind of defined me. It sort of became accident instead of essence, and the kind of riptide that had kept sucking me in around trying to get off medication uh, set me free. So uh, it was kind of a case where accepting it made it much less front and center. Um, And I'm really glad that I've done that. I mean, I, I used to say... I don't about the medication. I don't want to use a crutch. And what I now say is, if my foot were broken, I'd use a crutch. Well, my neurotransmitters are broken. Why wouldn't I try to give them a crutch as much as I would a broken foot? Yes. I mean, the stigma is just so powerful. I, you know, I remember when the Lochner case came up, one of my colleagues said, you know, this guy was really, really psychotic and really ill. If he had been coughing up copious amounts of blood, his parents would have taken him to the ER whether he wanted to go or not. But he had psychiatric symptoms, and it was just too hard to accept, or whatever the reason was. I, I can't really put words in their mouth. But, but the stigma about mental illness is so much greater than with physical illness, and it really shouldn't be. They're all just illnesses. Through the book, you talk frequently about this idea, as you just mentioned, that everybody else is having these same kind of thoughts. Right, it's just right. that they know how to cover it better than me, right. which, of course, sets it up that it's sort of your weakness, that you're not exactly. good at covering it. But exactly. on the other hand, I found myself thinking, 
maybe there was something protective for you in that thought because it, it meant that you you were the same as everyone. In, oh, that's, with that's the, interesting. And that's I a won- very good point. I wondered if it was protective in terms of shame, this belief that everybody else was thinking that their thoughts killed people. That's a, that's a great observation. I can tell you're a good therapist. <laughs> that's a really, really good op- uh, observation. I, I mean, think. it was a way, it was sort of a mixed, it was really a, a double-edged mixed. sword, right? Because on the one right. hand, it defined you as weak, but on the other hand, you weren't so strange, really. You weren't right. so beyond the pale. Right, I everybody. was like everybody else in, in this important way. So I want to shift now to stigma, because you write that if, if someone gets sent to ho- in hospital, they get sent flowers. Right. But you never send flowers to someone who's psychiatrically hospitalized. Isn't that strange? And it's I so mean, true. if you think about it, it's so it's so striking. All all you know all the years that I worked in off of you know inpatient psychiatric units, I never once saw, saw someone receive flowers. Yeah, it's mm-hmm. it's so poignant. And yeah. I wondered if you would tell maybe a, give a couple other examples of how you have experienced stigma. Well, I had a couple of very stigmatized experiences. As as an example, um, I wanted to be a volunteer at the hospital where I had been a patient, and once a volunteer found out that I had been a patient there, she suddenly stopped returning my phone calls and, you know, suddenly there were no volunteer jobs anymore or actually my first semester teaching mental health law, I had a psychiatric nurse in the class who basically said that, you know, a a patient with uh, mental illness should not be allowed to be a doctor. It was a case where a girl, a woman was kicked out. And she said, you know, like, would you go to a lawyer who was on psychotropic medication? And I thought, would you take your class with someone who's on psychotropic medication? (laughs) If only you knew. Yeah. Or I, you know, I, I was very traumatized by being mechanically restrained for long periods of time, and I wrote my law school note, which is a student article for the law re- journal on, on that topic, and I went to speak to one of my professors and talked about how degrading and painful it must be to be in restraints, and he said, Ellen, you don't understand. These people are psychotic. They're different from you and me. They don't experience this the way we would, and I thought, well, you know, that's not true. I, I did experience it, and experienced it as other people would as well. The most frightening example of stigma, and it's fairly common, is when medical symptoms are mistaken for psychiatric symptoms. So I was having terrible headaches, and then I started vomiting, and my friends took me to the doctor, um, to the ER, actually, and a predictable disaster occurred, which they found my medical record saying I had been a psychiatric patient, and they decided I was having an episode, even though my friends were jumping up and down and waving their arms and saying, this is not how she gets so they sent me home. Eventually, my internist sent me back. It turned out I was having a subarachnoid hemorrhage, which is a kind of stroke that kills about 50% of its victims. But they didn't even work me up because I was just a mental patient. And, and so this that's happens, a dangerous face of stigma. This happens every day. You I'm know, sure it does. I, in, sure. in my training in hospitals, we saw this. If someone had a psychiatric history, they were dismissed, and they weren't given the same kind of investigative the yeah, care. It's yeah, really very yeah, sad. Terrible. So you also write about self-stigma, though, about the, yeah. way, the kind of internalized shame. And right. um, I was so struck at your ability to, your courage in coming out and writing the book. And what enabled you to, to work through your own internalized shame and stigma to, to allow you to be so public? You know, it was hard. It was hard. I think that's one of the main things that therapy helped me with, coming to terms with the quote, as you know, we say in the biz, the narcissistic injury of having a mental illness. It just took an awful lot of therapy. A lot of people warned me that I shouldn't do it or do it under a pseudonym, and I thought, you know, that just sends the wrong message that this is so awful, awful that you can't say it out loud. 
But, you know, I was fearful of stigma. In fact, I've gotten just an outpouring of kindness and uh, support and love and respect. And it's just been an amazing, amazingly uh, empowering experience to have come out. And it's also uh, great not to have a huge secret anymore. But there still is stigma and, and internal stigma. I mean, as an example, when I fly to give talks about my my story and my book you know someone will say you know where are you going is it business or whatever I'm, I'm giving a talk or what about and then the thought crosses my mind do i say i'm giving a talk about my struggles with schizophrenia and i often say i'm giving a talk about law and mental health issues yes because <laughs> i'm you know i'm it's it's still embarrassing in a way and it shouldn't be but it is um, well, the public has so many ideas that that would make you violent or dangerous. Right. And, right. and right. Uh, that unfortunately, the link in people's minds between mental illness and violence is is so strong. Yeah, I mean, it, the the reality is it's you're, it's the substance abusers who are the dangerous ones, not the people with mental illness. But yeah, you know, you hear, you know, there's just sens- sensationalization of these. Yes. Horrible stories. Yes, you know. it's so important to say that. So I want to ask you about restraints now, because I know you've you've done a lot of professional work as a lawyer and a scholar mm-hmm. about the use of restraints and, in fact, the use of force on many levels in the right. care of people with mental illness. And um, I was so powerfully moved by the fact that in, in England, the hospitals did not use restraints as a matter right. of course. Right. And in American hospitals, they use them immediately and for long periods of time. And um, how do you understand the difference in that culture of care? You know, it's hard to say. I actually just, my Sachs Institute just put on a symposium on restraints. I think it's probably on our website if anyone wants to listen. But one of the encouraging things is that there's kind of impetus toward trying to reduce the use of restraints. And we had, you know, three or four examples of systems that went from high restraint use to low restraint use. So it it can be done. Um Maybe it's cultural differences. We're a more violent society, say, than England is. They may be more respectful of authority than we tend to be. Uh, and it's possibly just culture. It's, you know, a lot of studies have shown in America that, you know, incidence of restraint use isn't correlated with things like staff-patient ratio, kind-to-patient kind of hospital. It's correlated with the culture of the of the hospital. So what are the high-up personnel think about restraints? Is it a first choice treatment? Is it a treatment failure? And when that, you know, when staff are trained to use alternative methods to to diffuse a possibly violent situation, it often succeeds, but you need support from the top. Um, That that's, you know, it's something I'm working on right now. We're going to hope to publish a book about it, and we're going to try to do some studies here in California. Um, But, uh, you know, it's just the English experience and our experience with these different jurisdictions, Pennsylvania, Massachusetts, and so on, show that a, a goal of low or no restraint use is possible. You know, it turns out, you know, restraints are meant to keep people safe. But actually, a Harvard statistician predicted on the basis of some data given by the Hartford Current that every week in this country, one to three people die in restraints. They aspirate their vomit. Yes. They, they suffocate. They uh, have a heart attack. And, in fact, I gave this talk, I think it was at a NAMI meeting in San Diego some years ago, and talked about restraints. And about a week later, I got an email from this woman, Shannon, saying, you know, I came up to you after your talk. Do you remember who I am? Actually, my 27-year-old brother was just restrained face down uh, at, uh, at his hospital, and he died. And it kind of put a, a face to the problem. Um, which was really very hard for me, and it's 
it's something I care about a lot. It's something patients care about a lot because it's just so painful and so degrading. So, so degrading. It's ultimately so traumatizing. I just want to say NAMI is the National Association for Mental Illness. Yes, it's a um, great organization. Yeah, so, you know, I found myself wondering if actually the people in the unit, the patients on the unit, knowing that restraints are there, if there isn't already this kind of heightened level of fear yeah. that tends to create create the very thing that you're hoping exactly. to prevent exactly. that it sort of escalates on itself because people are so afraid and then they you know we all Absolutely. know if you if you corner someone who's paranoid to begin with they're going to be more threatening and right. um it's just yeah, it's a really tragic. a cycle of violence i mean and and i think you know uh you know the more you use restraints the more you're going to use them and as i i mean most uh, studies show that the highest incidence of staff injuries is during restraint episodes, which either means they're very good at predicting dangerousness or trying to restrain someone makes them dangerous, makes them react. And I, we talk about, you know, fight or flight. If someone surrounds you, if you're surrounded by all these people and you don't know what's happening to you and you don't know why, you know, you're liable to fight back. So I want to shift gears now, Ellen, and ask you about psychoanalysis because mm. – Psychoanalysis was such the dominant approach of American psychiatry for so long and now is in such disfavor. Right. And especially, you know, with psychosis, the, the focus here anyway, so much on containment, reduction of symptoms, you know, even the, the predominant psychotherapies for people with depression and anxiety are, fo- are about containment, about, you know, cognitive behavioral approaches. Right. And psychoanalysis is the other extreme of that, which is about this kind of lengthy in-depth exploration and um i'd love to hear from you how what role you feel like it's played in your i feel i i honestly believe that with without the therapy or without the medication i would kind of be on the streets i think both of them have been equally important i see my psychoanalyst five days a week i've been in four or five day a week psychotherapy for since you know the early 80s late 70s early 80s um, I'm very fortunate that I can afford it because it's made such a, a difference for me. And then the question is, you know, how does it work? And that's like the $50,000 question for everyone and not just people with psychosis. And in my case, I'm just going to list some things I think it did. Um, not all of these are specific to psychoanalysis, but they occurred in my case in the context of a psychoanalysis. So first of all, stress is bad for any illness, in particular mental illness, and the analysis helps you identify stressors and either avoid them or cope with them better. Second, it strengthens your kind of observing ego, that part of yourself that steps back and watches what's going on in your mind and tries to understand it. Third, it's a safe place to bring your crazy, violent, chaotic thoughts. Mm. It's sort of like a steam valve. If I can say them there, I don't have to say them in my outside world. Um, Fourth, it provides insight. So I remember, I mean, a lot of people, there's a debate about whether insight helps people with psychosis. One theory is psychotic symptoms are just random firings of neurons without meaning. Another is they're meaningful, but talking to the patient about them isn't going to help when the patient's in the midst of a psychosis. And the third is that it can sometimes help, and for me it sometimes did. And an example is I was saying a lot of violent things one day, and my analyst in New Haven said, you know, Ellen, I think you're saying violent things because you're really scared. The violence is your defense against fear. And I understood it, and it went away. And then finally, the relationships. You've got you know, a kind, smart, non-judgmental person who accepts you not only for the good and bad, but also the ugly. And that's very empowering. And another way to think about this is you know, people with schizophrenia have work issues and relationship issues and so on, just like anybody else that they can get help on with their therapy. And a lot of people 
investigators, researchers are not now studying not just uh, reduction or remission of symptoms of quality of life, and I think the analysis really helps with quality of life. That said, it's not for everybody. Maybe it's not even for most people with psychosis. And one thing I'd like to see is studies of very good, high-quality psychoanalytic treatment and good, high-quality medication and see what the outcomes are. It's, it's hard to study, but I don't think it's been adequately studied yet. And what we really need to study is who among the patients on the psychotic spectrum can benefit from this kind of treatment and who would do better with shorter term or more cognitive or more behavioral approaches. I mean, I'd, li- I'd like to say one other thing, which is I've had some CBT myself and doesn't work with me. It doesn't sit well with me. I find it kind of infantilizing and silly. That's just me, but the answer is it's not one size fits all. You've got to find what works for you. Mm-hmm. So you have also, I know, recently begun doing research with several other colleagues uh, into other people with schizophrenia who have been able to be very high-functioning or successful right. and working professionally and so on. And I wondered if you could say a little bit more about that research. Well, it's actually, uh, we're just starting to write it up. It's a great study. We're, we want to study, quote, high-functioning or high-achieving people with schizophrenia. And that we define that as a professional job, managerial, technical, full-time student, full-time caregiver. Um, all people with schizophrenia, um, all people uh, who had some symptoms still, they didn't just have a breakdown 20 years ago and have been fine since, and uh, all, you know, doing fairly well in the face of symptoms, you know, having those kind of good jobs. And a lot of people on my talks and travel say, you know, that I'm unique. There aren't other people with schizophrenia like me, and it's just not true. Of the 20 people, we had two MD doctors, clinical psychologists, PhD clinical psychologists, uh, consumer advocates, full-time students, full-time parents, teachers. There are other people out there. It's just the stigma so great they don't go public. You know, I have the... Uh, luxury of having a tenured position, so I'm fairly secure in my job. My place of work is really supportive anyway, so the tenure is probably not an issue. But uh, And we're actually, we want to study what techniques people have developed to manage their symptoms, hoping that there will be some commonality and we can design an intervention which would be both teachable and effective to help uh, people with that schizophrenia who aren't as high-functioning. We kind of, I mean, the high-functioning thing sort of rubs some people the wrong way, like, you know, you know, that's not, you know, that's overvaluing accomplishment too much. And one of the things we thought about studying is whether people were living up to their, quote, pre-morbid potential. You know, so like if everybody in your family has been a bus driver and you're a bus driver, that's a great outcome. But we just thought it would be really hard to, you know, operationalize that and figure that out in individual cases, but maybe another step a next step of the study would it be to try to do that. I mean, I remember what you said about what the prognosis you were given after you right. were hospitalized at Yale was, quote-unquote, grave, and that you would never work and never be able to support yourself. Right. So having examples of people who are doing just that and doing it right. incredibly well, how would your story be different if you knew that many people who had schizophrenia were living fulfilled lives? I wonder if your struggle might have been shortened. It might have been easier. It might have been easier. I actually, one thing that, you know, uh, when I, to, to this idea, to speak to the idea of people like telling people to drastically lower their expectations and don't try to work or don't try to work with anything difficult. When I was interviewed to be readmitted into Yale, the doctor suggested that I might want to, um, instead of going back right away, spend a year or two as a cashier at a food store. And I thought to myself, you know, I've been a student all my life. I'm good at it. I like it. 
it's something that involves a lot of flexibility. How much harder and stressful would it be for me to have a line of people demanding their change? You know, yes. so in some ways, aiming high is aiming low. You got to figure out what's good for an individual person and not just blanket say everybody should have a what you think of as would be a non-stressful job. I think about what Dr. Store in England told you about doing what you love. Doing. I know, wasn't that amazing? And thank yeah. goodness that he said that to you. He was so right. That he trusted that about you. Ellen, we're going to have to stop. I want to thank you so much for being my guest. It's really well, thank such you, a Dr. pleasure. Ann. It's been lovely to talk. Thank wanna, you so much. I want to direct people to Ellen Sachs's book, The Center Cannot Hold My Journey Through Madness. And also, I want to direct people to the Sachs Institute for Mental Health Law, Policy, and Ethics, which can be found on the web. If you would like to listen to the show in its entirety or email it, uh, the link to it to a friend, please go to our website at www.safespaceradio.com. Once you're there, you can email, subscribe to the show to get weekly notifications. You can download any show from iTunes, listen to it on your iPod. You can also like us on Facebook. I want to remind you that this is the last show for this season. I will be returning to Safe Space Radio in September. During the summer, Andrea Maraskin, along with a colleague, will be doing a show about interfaith religion and dialogue. My thanks to Andrea Maraskin, especially, for mixing the sound tonight, and to Maurice Lennon for the music, also to Jen Hodgson for being the person to put me in touch with Ellen Sachs. Tonight, we'll, we'll be going next to Covering the Bases with Thaddeus.